as we come now to the proclamation of God's Word. And uh, we are now starting a new sermon series and have been praying about uh, where we should go next. And usually what I like to do is alternate between Old Testament and New Testament. But I, the Lord kind of directed me towards First Peter, and I think you'll see why. I, I think as we, as Christians living now in this time and in this moment in history and in this place, we will feel the revel, uh, how relevant First Peter really is for us. Because Peter was writing, as we'll see, to believers who were living in a, a hostile culture, one that was uh, contrary to the gospel in many ways. And he writes in a way to give hope and joy and how we might live and respond for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. So this morning, a very short text. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2. It's been a while since I've had to preach on just a couple of verses, but here we are, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, where we read the words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word, and we would ask that your spirit would move, that you would attend to the preaching, the proclamation of your word, that it would be a means of building grace into the life of your people. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And have you ever been somewhere where you feel like, yeah, I really just don't belong here? I think all of us would answer that in the affirmative. We've all experienced situations where you just don't feel like you're part of the group, or you're in a situation that that makes you feel awkward and uncomfortable. And worse, many of us may have experienced situations where the very environment itself feels hostile. And you just want to escape. You just want to get away, to find an exit. But what if you can't escape? What if you're stuck? What if there's no immediate route out of the situation or the environment of hostility in which you find yourself? Well, for millions of Christians, for millions of believers throughout the world and across the panorama of church history, even into this present day, that has been the normal lived experience. And for those of us who have lived in the freedom of Western society for decades with a history of religious freedom, it's hard to imagine that kind of life until perhaps now. I'm no alarmist, but the reality of our lives is pointing more and more to the fact that as Christians, as those of us who believe Uh, that the word of God is true and we rest upon Christ alone for salvation, we are not tolerated in current Western society. We have effectively moved from a non-Christian secular society into an anti-Christian society, from 
a place where the church was viewed rather in neutral terms to one where the church is viewed in negative terms, unless it is the church that has conformed to the society's demands. And it is for that reason that Peter's epistles, both his first and second epistle, his first and second letter, are so relevant for us today. And so for the next several months, we want to explore what God says to us through his servant, the Apostle Peter. Because if you're like me and you're following what you see happening in the world, you probably feel a bit uncomfortable with the the trend our society is taking. We are waking up to the reality that if we affirm the Bible and rest in the gospel of Jesus, we are not acceptable members of society any longer. And nobody likes standing in blustery wind that blows against them. We'd rather be safe and comfortable. We'd rather hide away somewhere. But if we are followers of Christ, if we are followers of Jesus, his disciples, then sometimes it means that yes, we will be hated by the world around us. But Peter, he offers us hope. He offers us hope in the face of that hostile world so that we can stand firm for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. And as we look at this opening, this greeting that he gives, we understand his audience was indeed his initial audience as he wrote this letter sometime in the mid-60s A.D., Uh, He wrote this letter to those who were living in a hostile society. Peter, as an apostle, he writes with special authority. An apostle, of course, can mean several things in the New Testament. It can simply be somebody who is sent as a messenger with a message to others. Uh, Timothy and others who were appointed by Paul to minister to the churches he had planted were called apostles or messengers. They were to faithfully proclaim the word of God as his messengers. And there is a sense in the New Testament where any man who is commissioned by the church to carry out the ministry of the word is an apostle with a little a. But apostle has a special sense as well. It designates those 12 who were commissioned directly by Christ to bring God's word, to write God's word, to give it to his people. There's a sense where this idea of an apostle with a capital A is a one-time office. God gave the church the apostles in the early days of the New Testament to help establish his church and to ground it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And since now we have a complete revelation of God in the Bible, there isn't a need for those apostles like Peter anymore. But we still learn from them. We learn from them. And that is why we listen to someone like Peter. He is more than just a pastor, more than just a guy with some good advice of how to live a faithful life committed to Jesus in a hostile world. His words are binding. This is apostolic doctrine. Peter writes with heaven's authority. 
He writes as if Jesus Christ himself were writing these words and speaking to us now in this room. For indeed, he is through his Spirit. And this immediate audience needed a word of authority like that. A word of comfort that would come through the voice of God in Christ speaking to them. And so Peter addresses them to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The dispersion or diaspora, that word we find in other ancient literature usually referring to the Jewish population that had been scattered around the Near East. But Peter is using it here differently. Peter, of course, is addressing this letter to no doubt Jewish Christians as well that are in this region uh, that now comprises the nation of Turkey. But there's some key phrases in Peter's letter that indicate it wasn't just Jews of the dispersion he was writing to. He's using this word dispersion in a metaphorical sense because there were Gentiles comprising mainly his audience. For example, Peter mentions in verse 14 of chapter 1 that those to whom he is writing once lived in the ignorance of God, which is to suggest they did not know anything about God, the God of the Old Testament. They were likely pagan. They were Gentiles. They worshiped false gods. Yet the Jewish people were blessed by God with the knowledge of the Old Testament. They knew the promises of God. He also speaks of how this audience, the original audience to whom he writes, was ransomed from their feudal ways handed down by their forefathers. He says this in verse 18 of chapter 1. And Peter, as a Jewish man, we know from the New Testament, did not preach the gospel that way with that wording to other Jews. In fact, he pointed them to the rich heritage of God's revelation to them through men like King David. The faith of the Old Testament saints was a sign of God's faithfulness to reveal himself through the Son. But Gentile believers, they didn't have that same heritage. Their forefathers worshipped empty gods, pagan deities made of myth and legend and stone and wood, not the living and true God. So Peter's audience, while no doubt it did include Jewish believers, was a mixed congregation of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. As the Bible tells us, that is God's church, his people. So dispersion then alludes to the fact that they are scattered through this region of Turkey, or what is now modern day Turkey. But the scattering has a negative sense to it as well. It speaks of being displaced, unsettled, a foreigner. And they had good reason to feel that way. Through his first letter, Peter will make several references to the fiery trial that is to come. He speaks often as suffering, being a normal part of the Christian life. In fact, that motif will come at us early in his writing. He speaks of various trials that come upon God's people and the injustice that they should expect. Believers are not to be surprised 
by this, but to be prepared and ready for when it happens and able to give an answer of the hope that dwells within their hearts. But what are these trials that he speaks of, this this fiery trial, this suffering? Well, it's tempting to think of it as, well, it must be the, the organized persecution occurring under the Roman Empire. And well-documented are the terrible deeds that Rome poured out upon the early church. Many died in the Colosseum, we know, being torn apart by wild animals for the pleasure of others watching simply because of their confession of faith in Christ. Uh, Nero is said to have set the bodies of martyred Christians alight to light the streets of Rome. But those fiery trials are probably not what was being experienced here. This was not an official Roman persecution. It was more local, more sporadic. The persecution which the believers in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia were facing ranged from harassments to public shaming and possibly to imprisonment or death. Social status, family relationships, and economic well-being were affected in various ways because these believers had chosen to follow Christ in faith. Peter speaks of the believers are being slandered for the sake of righteousness. They did the right thing, believed what was true, but they were mocked and ridiculed by their neighbors for it. Social ostracism and psychological pressure came from living in a society with a non-Christian worldview. And in the the Greco-Roman culture of the region, it was expected that all people were to take part of the various social religious practices and customs that would happen throughout the year. And if you didn't take part of those, well then, why? That would be rather odd, rather strange. So much so that they would be cut off, these Christians, from society. They would be prevented from buying and selling goods and services. Simply getting one's needed food from the market would have been difficult. There's one of those Christians we will not sell to them. If you were skilled in labor, you may have had difficulty getting hired for a job. Such was the life of living in a culture and a society that was hostile to the faith. And such is the life for for many believers that they have faced both past and present, which leads to a question, a question that Peter's letter will answer. What kind of hope can we have when we are faced with social hostility to the gospel? I mean, why believe Christ? If we face so much opposition, if we were ostracized and cut off and suffer, what kind of hope can you really have when faced with social hostility to the gospel? Again, the parallels between Peter's original readers and what we see today in Western society, they're, they're striking. And true, we do not face the harsher aspects of persecution, such as imprisonment or martyrdom. Thankfully, we praise God for his protecting grace. But we do live in a culture and society that is becoming ever more hostile to the true gospel of Christ at a scorching pace. 
There are powers that are doing all they can to silence the voice of the faithful, at least in the public arena. And you can have your faith, but keep it to yourself. Don't speak truth. Do not utter anything that is contra to the popular narrative of modern morality. And we're starting now to feel that economic and social pressure to conform as well to the kingdom of this world. Especially in certain professions and fields from medical to academic, Christians who hold to God's word when it comes to its teaching on things like marriage and gender are now being cut off and pushed into silence. The social preachers of our generation, the poets of tolerance and love are some of the most unloving and intolerant people in the world. They cry against and discriminate against people regularly on the basis of their faith. These things are happening. And we feel that if it hasn't happened to us, it certainly makes us uncomfortable. We don't like it, nor should we. What do you do when your livelihood, such as it was for these believers to whom Peter originally wrote, what do you do when your livelihood Your means of earning an income is threatened because you believe in Christ. Carl Truman rightly identifies two reactions of Christians that they have taken historically. He says either Christians have retreated from culture, tried to live in a bubble, withdrawn from society, as we saw this happen with, for example, the fundamentalist movement in the early part of the 20th century, or what believers have done is they give into the temptation to compromise, to conform, to bend the knee to the winds of popular culture in order to be accepted, in order to not feel the sting of a hostile culture. Well, neither of those responses, as you can imagine, is what God calls his people to do when faced with society and culture that is hostile to their faith. And both First and Second Peter give us the answer of how we find hope in the face of hostility, how we are to live in that hope and in the joy that we have right here. Even in his opening greeting of this letter, we find that hope, one of grace and peace. You see, you have hope as a believer, as a Christian, because you know you are God's chosen sojourner. In verse 1, Peter calls believers elect exiles. An exile is a sojourner, a foreigner, a resident alien. In other words, they have a different home. They belong to a different country. They have a different allegiance than the place where they currently reside. Peter is pointing to that, which we call an eschatological hope. Believers' identity as exile sojourners or strangers means that the life that they live now is but temporary. They're only dwelling here, but for a time. And one day that time will end and they will return home. 
You see, we ought never to feel so comfortable or uncomfortable with life in this world that we forget we are actually citizens right now of a better kingdom. And that means even though we might suffer, even though we might experience the rebuke of a culture that hates us because it hates our Christ, we know that these things are but temporal. We have an everlasting hope. Being a stranger, a sojourner, an alien means that you do not belong to this sad world corrupted by sin. Notice in verse 1 that Peter also addresses the believers as elect exiles, chosen exiles. If you are a stranger to this world as a Christian, it means that God has chosen you out of it. You have been chosen by God Almighty. He, in His extravagant mercy and His sovereign grace, chose to pull you personally out of the mess of this world that we see around us and make you His sojourner. He, God Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, He who has breathed all that is into existence, He that is of such brilliant holiness that not even the angels can match. He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain between his hands. He who holds all things together by the power of his will. He chose you. And his choosing wasn't based on any merit or worth or nobility in you. Because as we know, We are not worthy of that grace. We have done nothing to earn it, nor is his choosing based on foreseen faith. It was all of grace. That's the beauty of the gospel. It has nothing to do with what you and I do that makes us worthy of God's favor because we could never do that. But he in his sovereign mercy and his grace chooses to make us his own in Christ. In verse 2, Peter lays out the plan and the process, uh, uh, process and the purpose of God's divine choosing to make his people sojourners in this world. He says, you are elect exiles, chosen sojourners, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. And so we see God's work of making a person His own involves the entire Godhead, the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, the Son sprinkles the believer with His blood as they obey Him in faith. And furthermore, we see that every one of the words here are important. Even the prepositions are rich with significance. So first, let's consider the plan of God's choosing. God's chosen exiles are chosen according, as Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of the Father. In accordance with means that there's a plan, a definite established plan. This is not happenstance. God doesn't choose his children arbitrarily. It is a predetermined, well laid out in the wisdom of God and his mind plan. 
God's foreknowledge isn't simply advanced knowledge that something will happen, though he does know that, of course. He knows all things. But God's foreknowledge implies a divine decision. He knows what will be because he has chosen it to be. And God's plan for you, if you are in Christ as a believer, is that you would belong to him as a son or a daughter, and he be your father, even before you were aware of it. And that means, that means you indeed can have great hope, even in the midst of suffering and trials, in the midst of a hostile society, because our exile ship, our sojourning was planned, it was laid out by his perfect wisdom. All the suffering and all the injustice, all the hardships that Christians suffer is not senseless bad luck. God is working through it. He has a plan written before creation itself for our good and for his glory. There is meaning behind all of it, even though we don't understand it in the moments. But we can trust a loving Father who wrote us into that plan. And we can trust it because God chose to know us as his children before we knew him. There's an aspect of foreknowledge that is relational. He foreknew us not as strangers, but as his family. He is our Father. A good earthly father will do what is best with his, for his children, or at least try, how much more will our perfect heavenly Father do for us who are His? Secondly, we see the process of God's choosing. Peter says believers are chosen by the sanctification of the Spirit. And sanctification here speaks of consecration or dedication to God. Sanctification is a work of God's grace whereby we are renewed in our whole being after the image of God, as our shorter catechism explains it. It is a process. It starts with conversion when the believing sinner is made alive by the power of the Spirit to trust Christ because they are quickened, they are made alive from being dead in sin, and thus they are no longer under condemnation. A believer from that point then grows in their faith and knowledge of Christ, putting sin to death through the power of God within them. And that means they're marked. They're marked as God's distinct people. Believers are set apart, dedicated to Him. The Spirit is the power of God at work in each and every Christian, which means that they are no longer under the power of this sin-corrupt world. Being consecrated, dedicated to God, means that you don't belong here. You are a sojourner. Your sanctification, that, that process that God is working in you till Christ returns, is evidence of his electing grace in your life. And that doesn't mean that your life will be perfect. No, 
we still struggle with our old sinful natures. We will never achieve perfect holiness in this life. But it means that God's grace is already at work. And one day it will be complete when Christ returns and all suffering has ended. And so we can trust in his sanctifying grace, even in the face of a culture hostile to Christ and his church. Third, we see the purpose of God's choosing of believers to be exiles. We are chosen for obedience, he says, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The goal of God's choosing his people is so that they would become his covenant people for all eternity. You see, the language Peter uses here in this last little phrase, for obedience and for the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, that is covenantal language. In fact, that language of covenant, of covenant relationship, covenant faithfulness between God and his people is going to come up again and again and again in First Peter. And right here in verse 2, it is an allusion back to Exodus chapter 24, where we read of a covenant inauguration ceremony where God has given his people his law And here is what we read in Exodus 24. And listen to this play, this this covenantal language of obedience and sprinkling of blood. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So we see here God's electing grace has a very definite purpose. That purpose, as he says, is obedience. That is the obedience of faith. We're not talking about good works of righteousness. We're talking about a commitment to God in faith that is carried out in love for him and for his law. Faith is submission to Christ as Lord and King. It is resting and trusting in Him alone as one Savior. Faith is the condition of God's covenant as grace. That condition must be met if the blessing, the promise, is to be yours. But notice, the obedience of faith follows God's choosing It isn't the obedience of faith that makes the choice happen. No, the choice is simply his loving grace. We believe because he chose us to do so. 
So the gospel is all of grace. That's the purpose of his gracious choice. That is his purpose in making you his sojourner. That you would be obedient to Christ. And in believing, we are what? We are sprinkled with the cleansing blood of Christ. That is to say, we are marked by the promise of God. We're sealed as his people. The blood of the Lamb is upon us. It is God's claim to you saying that you in Jesus are mine. So let's put that all together now. Believers are exiles or sojourners because they've been graciously chosen by God out of the world, which was the eternal plan of the Father. And thus by His Spirit, they are consecrated, dedicated to Him so that they might obey Christ in faith, being made part of His covenant promises because they have been marked, sealed by the blood of Christ who died for them. In other words, the reason we face this hostility in the world, the reason why Peter's original audience said, the reason why we do today is because we have received great grace. You see, it's an odd, an odd situation that the suffering we see or the hostility we feel points to the fact that we have been blessed beyond measure, blessed by the grace of God with a hope, an everlasting hope. And so Peter gives this greeting, he says, to these people and to us, grace and peace. It is a customary greeting, but they aren't just nice words. There's meaning behind that. There's a declaration of promise. The grace of God is upon you and his peace is with you. Even in this hostile culture, even amongst the suffering, you have peace because you are part of a better kingdom. And the unbelieving world has often asked and continues to ask, well, why doesn't the church just fade away? Even when we turn against it, so harshly, why do Christians keep believing? And why does the church keep growing? It has been said that the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it seems when persecution becomes the hardest, the church grows the most. Why is that? Why do we keep worshiping Christ and living for the glory of God when it makes us so hated by the world around us? We do it because of who we are, because who he has made us by his grace. Nothing can take away our identity in Jesus Christ. We do it because we have a peace that the unbelieving world and the unregenerate mind cannot understand. We do it because we are Christ's. We do it because we don't belong to this world. We are children of the Father, consecrated by the Spirit, and marked by the blood of the Son. We are His people. We are His sojourners his exiles. And so let us then, let us not live in fear, but walk in confidence and encourage that we have a hope, a real and everlasting hope of faith in Christ. And it is ours because God chose to make it so before the very world was created. That is God's grace to you, believer. 
That is His grace that makes you His sojourner. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're thankful how even in your wisdom you had us at this moment in mind as you wrote these words, your truth through your servant, your apostle Peter, to our brothers and sisters who lived so long ago. Father, we can take comfort in the fact that as they were faithful and endured, we too can be faithful and endure. Because the same grace that you poured out upon them and the same peace that you placed into their hearts, you have given us as well. So Father, remind us of these things. Let us go forth not in fear and trembling, but in joy, holding on to the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord until he comes again. We pray this in his name. Amen.